1: Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Temp here. Thanks for tuning in. Listen, you've noticed changes with the podcast. We have more to come. And one of those is the entirety of our branding. Is it time for us to refocus, to specialize, to modify, to niche down, to pivot? It's all up for debate. If you want to be part of that debate, shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com and let us know, are there topics you enjoy more than others? Are there guests you enjoy more than others? Are there things you wish we did differently? smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com That said, this episode has to somehow fit into that vision because it's episodes like this that come out of nowhere and remind me how much we need experts We need the person who has dedicated decades of their life to something to change our paradigms in the way we view existing institutions. This week on the podcast, we are talking to Dr. John Abramson, specifically about his new controversial book called Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It. And listen, trigger warning. You're going to listen to this and probably be upset. There is almost no way not to be. In fact, this interview is one of the things that sparked this idea of rebranding. One of the things I'm considering is, should we be shedding light solely on the things that need to change in society and the voices that are changing them? Those experts, I don't know, but John does a heck of a job in this episode. He has been on the faculty of Harvard Medical School for 25 years, where he teaches healthcare policy. He served as a family physician for 22 years, during which he was named a top doctor 6 times in local, state, and national surveys. He served as an unpaid consultant to the FBI and Department of Justice, including in a case that resulted in the largest criminal fine in US history. He's been featured all over the news, many media outlets, etc. And, as I mentioned, is the author of this incredible book, Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It. In this episode, we will debunk many of the common myths about the American healthcare system, the benefit of American pharmaceuticals, the COVID vaccine, the marketing giant that is the pharmaceutical industry, and the pull it has on everything we do, and much more. If you enjoy this and want to support the show, patreon.com slash smart people podcast for as little as $2 ad free episodes and more. Here it is our episode with Dr. John Abramson as we talk about his new book, Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It. Enjoy. Listen, I'm so excited to talk about your brand new book. It's called Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It. I'll tell you what jumped out to me. And without naming names, I want to tell a little story to kick this off. I have uh, two friends who are in the pharmaceutical sales industry. I've known them for decades, went to college with them. And I remember asking them, When they took this role, you know, what are you doing? What's happening? And they said, Well, I'm taking classes. I'm learning. I said, Oh, like sales? What? No, I'm learning about the drugs I'm going to sell. And I said, Okay. And they said, Well, who do you think explains the drugs, the research, the studies to the doctors? And I said, I thought the doctors learned that. That's their job. He said, No, we do it. And that right there is the moment I realized there was an issue. Tell me how that relates to your experiences with the problems we have in our healthcare system.
2: Right. So there's layers of problems here. Problem number one that relates to your friends, they're getting trained about the drug, the mechanism of action, the clinical trial data, um, why doctors should prescribe it, why it's going to benefit patients. And they believe they're in class learning the objective science What they're learning is the drug company's version of objective science. They're not getting to see the data. Um, The drug company owns the data, and they're not sharing it. And when they bring it out to physicians, they're bringing out the drug company's version of the data. Now, you might say, well, okay, drug companies marketing, but doctors have been through school and they know how to read medical journals, and they can formulate their own opinion so what's the harm in hearing the drug company's side of the story? And the harm is, and this is known by very few physicians, that when articles are published in peer-reviewed medical journals, even the most respected peer-reviewed medical journals, doctors are taught to absorb those um, findings and alter their practice based on those findings, the docs who read those articles don't understand that the peer reviewers and the editors of the medical journals, they too have not been given the data. Just like the drug reps have not been given the data, the peer reviewers can't have the data. So we think, and docs are taught to think, that when they read a peer-reviewed article in a respected journal, that that science has been adequately vetted, independently vetted. And it has not. It's what, what the journal has received <clears throat> is a manuscript, a maybe 30-page manuscript or whatever, 20-page manuscript, that includes summary data from the trial, but it's the drug company's summary almost always. Occasionally, the docs are independent who write it, but it's almost always the drug company's summary of the data. And the data them, itself is owned by the drug company, and it's not available. You can't check it so the article that's in <clears throat> excuse me in the peer reviewed medical journal has not been adequately vetted we don't know that it's accurate and reasonably complete and then the experts who write the clinical practice guidelines that set the standards of medical practice they too do not have access to the primary data from the drug company studies so they can't do the experts who write the guidelines can't do their own independent analysis so As outrageous as it was to you on the face of it, that your friends, um, who um, I'm sure they're very smart and have some scientific training, but they're not physicians, they're not PhD pharmacists, your friends believe they're getting accurate data. And you say, well, they're working for the company and I can understand how they would make that assumption and not question it. But the docs are making the same assumption. That's
1: what's crazy. See, this is what I don't understand. It's been drilled into anybody who cares brain that peer-reviewed, you know, double-blind studies are the gold standard. So even that is a standard that I don't think is met often enough. But what you're saying is even that gold standard is ripe with inaccurate data in the first place, which makes me wonder, what is the purpose Of any scientific research, if the input itself is flawed.
2: Right. And that's really what I want to talk about today and what sickening is about. Okay. And what's happened is the purpose of that research has become unambiguously to sell product. It's not to improve health. It's to sell product. There's even, in the book, there's a slide um, that was shown in litigation involving Pfizer. And it says, we own the data. And the purpose of that data is to support our marketing efforts. Wow. And they mean it. So now, um, about 86% of clinical trials are funded by the drug companies. And for the whole research effort, that produces the knowledge that doctors rely on in the United States, 96% of that research is about drugs and devices. And about 2% of it is about preventing illness and improving population health. And the reason why it's gotten there is because the commercial entities decide how to invest their money in research and they invest in the products that are gonna make the most money, not the most health. As far as
1: I know, America creates more beneficial pharmaceuticals than most other countries in the world. Is it possible this is a necessary evil? Like, yeah, we we might be lining their pockets. We might have out-of-control costs, but the world benefits from the research and the R&D money that these companies are investing, and this is just their only way to recuperate
2: it. Okay, that's a, that's a great question. Um Let's start by looking at how our investment in the United States, how our healthcare investment, uh, is, uh, compares to other countries and what the payoff is. So, Americans, you're right, they get access to newer drugs more quickly. There's no question about that. And there's a huge, um, glitter around medical innovation problem is that it's not improving our health as a nation so we get innovative care and some of that innovative care is incredibly important uh, the drugs that uh suppress hiv infection the or hepatitis c uh there are some fabulous drugs but if you look at the big picture we get newer drugs sooner we put them into use sooner uh, drugs are the component of health care that is most responsible for our increased costs. And let's look at the health of the American people. You would think under those circumstances that those benefits would improve the health of the American people. Well, in 2000, we ranked 38th in the world on healthy life expectancy. That's probably the best single measure of the health of a population. It's how many years people live in good health. And if they have an illness that compromises their quality of life by 50%, they get a half a year of healthy life expectancy for that. So it's kind of a global single um, number that, that, that is representative of population health. So in 2000, we ranked 38th. And our health care expenditures were not that far above the other wealthy countries. Since that time, our healthcare expenditures have gone way above the other countries. So we now spend 7% more of our GDP on healthcare than the other wealthy countries do. The key is that the health of our population has gone from 38th in 2000 in the world to 68th in the world in 2019 before the pandemic started. So we're getting this innovation. There's no question about that, but you can't equate innovation with improved health and sometimes the innovation does equate to improved health for a small portion of the population with a disease that can be treated that wasn't treated before, but it is coming at the cost of of the population of all of the health of all Americans. That is such a
1: paradigm shift and I'm so glad you said it and what I'm realizing That's their goal, right? Their goal is not just—and by they, I mean the pharmaceutical companies—not just to convince the physicians about the benefits of their drugs, but to convince the American people that the things they are creating are benefiting us, are cutting edge, are world leading. But in reality, just because we're creating more and we're at the tip of the spear if it's not achieving our ultimate goal, it's all a facade. The whole thing is essentially in order to line their pockets. Because I bet if we've gone from 38th to 70th and 68th. we've increased our spending. yeah, to 68th, we don't
2: exaggerate.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. And amount of GDP we're dedicating to it has gone up. I also bet you that although our health is going down, the pharmaceutical companies' profits has gone up in that time frame as well
2: absolutely and that's the key um the the uh, biotech market is in a little bit of a crash right now but before this uh recent downfall uh it was by far the most lucrative uh or or producing the greatest return on investment for investors and what we need to remember despite all the um public relations about pharma is here to help your life and and make people live better happier lives and all that their job is to maximize their profits without limit it's not like their job is to make 20 percent return on invest uh, on uh sales or 30 percent profit on sales their job is to maximize the, the the return on investment without limit and so that they're going to do their research they kind of control uh medical science they control the medical science that gets commercialized and brought to american people that doctors prescribe and what's happening is that body of knowledge about medical science that doctors have as uh, arrows in their quiver to help people that is determined by it, it, it is prioritized by how the return on investment will go so uh, an easy example here would be statins. Cholesterol lowering statin drugs are the most frequently prescribed class of drugs in the United States. And um, in order to prevent <clears throat> one non fatal heart attack or stroke in people who don't have heart disease and don't have elevated risk, you have to treat between a hundred and a hundred and forty people for five years with a statin in order to prevent one event, and the other. 99 or 139 people aren't going to get have benefit and are going to be exposed to side effects. So that's a fact. It, it doesn't say whether low-risk people should take a statin or not. But if you're a low-risk person and you're considering taking a statin, you should understand that you have between 1 out of 100 and 1 out of 140 chance of benefiting by taking that drug for five years.
1: Let me ask you about that. Because actually, I had this conversation with my dad it, it, for years. He's been like, Ah, maybe I'll take, maybe I won't. Because it works, right? The statins for far more than one out of 150 do lower cholesterol. But what you're saying is that lowering it, the effect that has is only, you know, beneficial for X amount. Is that what you're saying?
2: Well, let's parse it just a little bit uh, more finely. Um, Having a lower cholesterol, that's a surrogate marker of risk. In other words, people with lower cholesterol aren't healthier. People with lower cholesterol may have a lower risk of developing cardiovascular disease. so the goal is not we've we've been they've gotten into our heads wow. that that the goal here is to lower cholesterol, but the goal is to reduce the risk of heart disease, and this gets back to the point that I want to make here so That's a fact, and we can talk about what 1 out of 100 and 1 out of 140 means and how doctors should talk to their patients, and that's an interesting topic. The point I want to make is that the goal is to reduce heart disease. Statins have been available since 1987, so they've been available for 35 years, and the goal is to reduce the risk of heart disease. There's never been a major clinical trial to determine whether adopting healthy lifestyle habits is a better way to prevent heart disease than taking a statin. Right. That study's never been done, and it's never been done because it is certainly not in the drugmaker's interest to do it.
1: What about this notion, which sadly I believe to be true, which is you give 100 Americans the opportunity to take a pill or to change their lifestyle, and 99 of them are going to choose the pill. And so— Maybe is there any way that this is the the government or the, you know, the markets creating this demand, which is, look, we all know we should be healthier, but people are generally lazy, don't want to change. And so our next best alternative is to give you this pill.
2: Okay, thank you for saying that, because that uh, uh, you believe that and doctors certainly believe that, that they don't (laughs) want to waste their time telling people to make lifestyle changes because people won't do it. There was a study that addressed that specific issue. It was a publicly funded study. It was like the study that I said hadn't been done to compare statin therapy to lifestyle therapy. But in this case, it was a study of people at high risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And they were randomized. This is a publicly funded study, so that we're really asking the question, how best to reduce the risk of these high-risk people going on to become diabetic? And uh, the study was very nicely designed so that there was a placebo group and there was a group that was treated with metformin, which is a blood sugaring, uh, an inexpensive, effective blood sugar lowering drug. Mm -hmm. And then there was a group that was assigned to lifestyle modification, intensive lifestyle modification counseling. And they got placebo pills and they got sort of sham uh uh, lifestyle advice versus real intense oh, lifestyle counseling. So this te- this is a test of the question you just asked. You know, people will choose a drug because they think it's effective, and they and they won't make lifestyle changes no matter if you step on stand on your head and plead with them. Yeah. The fact is that the most effective way to prevent diabetes, fifty eight percent more effective than a placebo, is the lifestyle group. People lost 10 pounds and kept it off. They were exercising five times a week, and they really did make changes. And this is a randomized controlled trial. This Mm -hmm. didn't say, hey, who here likes to exercise? Go in that group. They didn't do that. They randomized the people. So it's very clear the Diabetes Prevention Program showed that lifestyle counseling is effective. For people at risk of diabetes, but there's no reason to believe they're any different. In fact, they're probably a harder group to modify the behavior in than people who are at risk of heart disease, because the diabetes folks are more obese and you know have have more um, set ways, uh, lifestyle habits that need to be modified. So, so that study proves that when you're committed as researchers to ask the question you get an answer that shows that we can prevent 58% of diabetes with healthy lifestyle intervention. The uh, drug, it was significantly better than placebo, but it reduced diabetes by 31%. So the lifestyle intervention was about twice as effective.
1: I'm glad you said that because even as the words came out of my mouth, I thought, I don't know, is that true? We also tend to go, ah, Who even knows what's true anymore? I mean, let's say we go and we talk about healthy lifestyle changes. Okay, first place people want to start is diet. Well, do I go keto? Do I go Atkins? Do I go paleo? Do I go vegan, vegetarian? Do I go meat? Do I, You know, who knows? Okay, let's talk exercise. Do I go high intensity? Do I go aerobic? I mean, why don't we know behind all of these is a profit motive? Every single thing I just said is a profit motive motive. And that's what's making all of it confusing, which is at the core of what you're saying.
2: Right. And how about if we come back to common sense? How about if we say, well, you're asking high intensity, low intensity? As a family doc, my recommendation is start walking five minutes a day. And in three weeks, get up to a mile and see how you feel. And, you know, common sense ought to be able to take you there. Instead of uh, making it this reductionist science that you've got to get your heart rate up to 80 percent of maximum (laughs) and blah, blah.
1: I always operated under the assumption that when a drug gets FDA approval, they can't be providing imperfect science to get that. When pharmaceutical companies
2: own the data, what are they legally allowed to do with it? Your assumption is probably mostly correct. Um. I hear stories from insiders, uh, anecdotes about, um, uh, sloppy research techniques. Um, but let's assume that the accurate data is turned over to the FDA. They have it. They cannot release it. They analyze that data and they make reports that has some of the data in it. And the FDA officers make recommendations to the FDA about the safety and efficacy of the drug. And then sometimes it goes to an advisory panel. The point here is that there's two tracks for the data. One is to the FDA, which gets such as the data is, assuming that there's data integrity. And let's leave that as an assumption for the time being. Um, The FDA gets that. And they make their recommendations based on that. But that information does not go to the medical journals. It certainly doesn't go to your friends who are drug reps getting trained to teach doctors. It, It doesn't go to the experts who write the clinical guidelines. So Pfizer in its slide made clear that the purpose of their data is to support their marketing.
1: If I'm interpreting that correctly, we can hope and assume that the FDA gets pretty thorough, correct, all-encompassing data, let's say. But their job is pretty much to say we approve or not approve, right? They're not making recommendations. They're not doing dosing. They're not doing prescribing. No, any of no, no. Just, no right? Time
2: out. They are doing dosing. Okay. They're, they're making dosage recommendations. Okay. And when they approve a drug, they approve a drug for specific uses. Okay. They say... Uh, statins have been shown to reduce cholesterol uh, and they approve statins for the reduction of cholesterol. The point here is that FDA approval tells doctors what they can prescribe and they're allowed to prescribe drugs off label as well, but they have in the label, it has indications, the approved indications. So the FDA tells doctors what they can prescribe but they don't tell doctors what they should prescribe. Right. They don't look at the comparative uh, medical benefit and the comparative costs of different drugs. Other countries, other wealthy countries, have agencies that do that. It's called health technology assessment. In the UK, for example, it's the National Institute of Clinical Excellence. It doesn't work perfectly, but it's pretty good. Sure. Um, and Germany and France, the, uh, most of the wealthy countries have this health technology assessment. We don't have it, we don't have any health technology assessment. So, can, what, can I take a guess why? Is it <laughs> lobbying on the pharmaceutical
1: companies, honestly? Um, yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's even worse. I mean, it's illegal in the United States. It was Newt Gingrich who got rid of our, um, Our health technology assessment back in 1995 with his contract with America. We had it. We were the first country to have it. Are you kidding me? No.
1: Oh my God, it's so frustrating.
2: Yeah. Yep. So now, just to finish on this idea about how we're different in terms of handling data, it's illegal in the United States for the federal government to fund cost effectiveness studies. It's illegal for the federal guv- for federal research dollars to determine which drug is more efficient than another drug and it's illegal for federally funded guidelines to consider the differential costs of therapeutic options illegal there was an
1: example i saw on a drug that i happen to be relatively familiar with uh, methotrexate versus humira yes right i've seen humira all over the place. I've seen a billion ads about it. And what your book talks about is the difference in effectiveness, and correct me where I'm wrong, I believe is close to zero, yet the difference in cost is exponential. And this is what you're talking about right here when you talk about doing a cost analysis. Is that fair? You want to tell us more?
2: That's exactly right. And um, this is not like a radical one-sided analysis, This is in the FDA-approved label that the study that compared methotrexate to Humira for first-line therapy of rheumatoid arthritis showed that they're equally effective. Humira costs about $72,000 a year. Methotrexate costs somewhere around $500 a year.
1: Hey, Chris here. Quick break in the show. Listen, is this episode upsetting you yet? Are you just seething with frustration at the pharmaceutical industry, the waste, the lack of care and compassion, the profit motive? I know I was. But the silver lining I took away from it is we have more control over our health than we think. We don't have to outsource it to scientists in a laboratory, and we can use a lot of what Mother Nature intended to be our medicine. That's why I specifically set up our sponsor this week for this episode. Our sponsor is Golden Poppy Herbs. They are a small, handcrafted, woman-run business dedicated to helping you find natural solutions to your health needs. One of my favorite things, the entire team at Golden Poppy Apothecary is either an herbalist or an aromatherapist. And I specifically wanted to tell you they offer one-on-one consultations if you need guidance finding the right herbs for you, regardless of if you're looking to improve your sleep, your energy, your focus. Golden Poppy Apothecary has the natural herbal solution for you. No pharmaceuticals needed. One of my favorites and their most popular products is their Time for Bed Tea. It is packed full of herbs to help prepare your body for optimal sleep. It has things like organic, chamomile, skullcap, passionflower, linden, and hawthorn flowers, each of which will support the transition into sleep, and it will help your body stay asleep. You can also look at their wide variety of skincare products made from natural ingredients. The best part is get 20% off your entire purchase by going to goldenpoppyherbscom slash smartpeople. That's goldenpoppierbs.com slash smart people for 20% off your entire order. Heal with nature, heal with plants, and get personalized recommendations from their incredible team. goldenpoppierbs.com slash smart people. Now back to the episode. So there's two issues at play here that I think we're going to have to uncover. And one is the cost angle, but the other is the benefit angle. Because look, personally, I want the best care. Now, of course, let's take a step back and talk about the cost of healthcare and how ridiculous that is. But as somebody who works at a company, has good healthcare, is lucky, I also want the best care. So if I were to argue against you, if I were to be a doctor who knew more, like what would my argument be for the benefits of this American system? Because I'd like to think, yes. We have these outrageous costs and we know we need to rein them in. But we're also at the center of cancer research, which some can't be solved by lifestyle changes.
2: There is truth there, but we've got to realize what, what we the part of the story that we're not getting is that when you invest all this money, let's say cancer research, the vast majority of the new drugs are very incrementally Beneficial. Yeah. And yeah. many of them just improve surrogate endpoints, like lowering cholesterol instead of preventing heart disease. Um, it could be a disease free interval instead of high quality of life interval, mm. uh, like that. Um, but let's assume uh, what the data shows is that about 30 new drugs, truly new drugs are approved each year by the FDA. It's called new molecular entities. So it's not combinations of old drugs and not extended release drugs, 30 new drugs. What the German health technology assessment folks found is that one out of four of those new drugs provides truly new benefit that wasn't previously available. So when we Use all the new drugs because the doctors can't get the information that would allow them to evaluate completely the uh, relative benefits and cost of of the drugs. We use all the drugs when a quarter of them are truly beneficial. But to get back, I want to get to the core of your question because I think that represents a lot of the public's concern and vulnerability to PR from the drug companies. Right. So we do have innovative drugs, we, and, and sometimes they're really good. And if we cut out the investment in drug innovation, we're going to pay a price. And it may be my kid who pays the price for not having exactly. a drug that could cure some awful disease that he has. That, there's, that can happen. It, it, that's not an, um, a fantastical uh, scenario. But here's the problem. We are spending so much of our national resources on medical interventions, which account for about 20% of our health, and so little of our national resources on the social determinants of health, which account for 80% of our health, that you may help an individual or a, a thousand individuals with, with a new drug that wouldn't have been available if you cut the investment down. But if we take that investment over, we're grossly under-investing in social determinants compared to the other wealthy countries. Our ratio right. is like flipped from the other countries, medical and social, uh, compared to um, other wealthy countries. If you take that investment over, and if we put epidemiologists in charge of how we allocate those resources instead of um, drug companies trying to maximize their profits. And we said to the epidemiologists, okay, here's this bundle of money that we have to invest in creating new medical knowledge. How can we invest it best to improve the health of all Americans? We would get a hugely greater return on our investment than uh, looking for the latest new way to develop some um, incremental benefit in a terrible disease like cancer. Yep, that makes
1: sense. Actually, one of the things that I'm seeing as we go through this, and not to belabor the example, but when we were talking about Humira and Methotrexate, I imagine if we look the amount of R and D money that went into Humira for a almost immeasurable amount of benefit. There's there just hardly is any right. So if you can say we we have a drug that does what Methotrexate does, let's take that money and invest it elsewhere, okay, either social or into really game-changing potential drugs, we would solve two problems. The reason the drug companies don't do that is because it's harder to make a profit that way. It's harder to make a blockbuster drug than it is to minutely improve an existing one and market it a whole hell of a lot better.
2: That's exactly right. And what we don't have, because we don't have health technology assessment, We don't know. So we're talking about the example you saw in the book, and that's in the label for um, Humira, Mm -hmm. shows that methotrexate provides equivalent benefit as first-line therapy for rheumatoid arthritis. Now, first-line therapy doesn't always work. So you go to second-line therapy. So if you test second-line therapy, it's methotrexate plus Humira on one side, and triple therapy, which is methotrexate plus two other drugs, hydroxychloroquine, the uh, drug that is used without evidence uh, uh, for uh, COVID, and uh, um, a sulfa drug, uh, sulfasalazine, I think. Um, If you do that triple therapy, which is very inexpensive, versus methotrexate plus Humira instead of methotrexate plus the other two drugs, what do you find? You don't find anything because they never did the study. You just solved a huge riddle for me. Oh,
1: my gosh. I'm so glad you said that. Here's why. In the back of my mind, and I can't get it out of my head, I'm going, but but Dr. Abramson, I've seen the commercials. They say, for those who don't respond to methotrexate, here's the benefit. But in reality, what you're saying is, exactly. We don't get, they don't tell you, we also have a better, cheaper treatment Than Humira for this.
2: Right. And there there are a couple of drugs that are virtually equivalent to Humira, uh, Remicade and Enbrel, that are almost as expensive. And that study was done for those drugs, or at least for one of them. And there was no superiority. Wow. They were clinically equivalent.
1: And to get back to the root cause of this, At the end of the day, the doctors might prescribe Humira because they've seen the research and says, hey, methotrexate didn't work, but I know if we add Humira, you're going to see this benefit. They might not know about the other drugs that you just recommended because those drugs don't have a sales force behind them because they don't have the profit availability
2: that's exactly right and, and the other wow. prong of this that's very important is that as the price of humira was going up from 20,000 to 72,000 in the uh 2010s uh humira was for many of those years the most advertised drug so that it had the name recognition so the consumers are believing you they heard the ad you heard they're not yeah. as sophisticated as you they didn't ask that question but they it was uh sort of put in their brain that Humira was the superior alternative, and the doctors were getting marketed to by the guys who are your college buddies who were getting right. trained by the drug companies, Right, and this system works. The, the key here in sickening, in my book, I, yeah. mean, I, I spent 10 years yeah. in litigation. I spent uh, in litigation, in national litigation, I got to see what was inside the corporate computers. I, I can't tell most of it because I signed confidentiality agreements and I won't break them Of but, course but the the key is we cannot forget this the drug company's job is to maximize the profits they return to their investors they'll hire PR companies to say that they're trying to cure disease and make our lives better and they'll have the PR companies say if you take a dime away from us it'll be a nuclear winter for medical innovation and they will They will keep this illusion solid that the innovation that they do is the foundation of Americans' health. And it's not. The difference between the American healthcare system in broad brushstrokes and the other healthcare systems where people live a lot longer and a lot healthier and they spend a trillion and a half dollars less per year than uh, we would spend a trillion and a half less if we spent what they spend. The purpose of this system is to maintain maximum profitability. And we've got to get over the niceties of um, and how impolite it is. I mean, I, amongst my peers, it's very impolite to say these things. Oftentimes I don't say it uh, because it would be create such it's so discordant with the shared beliefs that I keep a lot of this stuff to myself when I'm uh, with peers. But this is the story that Sickening tells, is that we have been duped hugely, historically, by this idea that medical innovation is the way we're going to live a healthy, good life. When in fact, having healthy life habits... And doing the common sense things that we know we should do, but that sometimes are difficult because there's no social investment in uh, exercise facilities and uh, making sure there aren't food deserts and uh, making sure people have good housing and that they, um, all those problems, solving all those problems. It's not glitzy. It's not genetically engineered vaccines uh, that blah, blah, um, but that's the way to good health.
1: It's not sexy, but it works. I mean, that's the problem, right? Right. You know what it makes me think of? We're we're dealing with COVID right now. I just heard a study about the cost to prevent the next pandemic is somewhere in the range of billions. So it doesn't start with a T. It's not trillions. Let's call it, I don't know, 200 billion. We could spend that money from the budget you're talking about and have an exponentially more beneficial Impact on the health of our country and our our planet, as opposed to the next humera. If you want a specific example, that's
2: one. Right. Let me give you a concrete example. You're talking about the next pandemic. Yeah. Let's talk about this pandemic. So in May, last May, May of 2021, the World Health Organization, the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, and the International Monetary Fund published. Uh, all-hands-on-deck editorial in the Washington Post. And they said, we need $50 billion now so that we can vaccinate with the vaccines we have, not future science fiction, but we need $50 billion to vaccinate the third world, the underdeveloped countries, the poor countries, so that we can get a 40% vaccination rate by the end of 2021 And a 70% vaccination rate in 2022. We need $50 billion. And if we don't get it, we're going to lose $9 trillion in economic activity, let alone the bad health that was going to be consequent. They didn't get it. The vaccination rate in Africa is now 9%. It's not 40%.
1: And that's where Omicron came from.
2: That's where Omicron came from. Exactly. But here's the key to the story. They needed $50 billion. 32 American vaccine billionaires had made $50 billion at that point from the vaccine. So they make this great vaccine. This goes back to this issue you were saying about, well, it yeah. doesn't innovation solve the problem? They made this fabulous vaccine. Adults, if you are not vaccinated, please get vaccinated. This is really serious business. The mm-hmm. political um, noise about this is craziness. Get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying mandates. I don't want you know, don't want to get any yet. Just make a sure. personal decision to get vaccinated.
1: Okay.
2: Um, but um, what happened is we, we developed uh, Operation Warp speed through a lot of money at this problem. And they did a great job. I have to credit President Trump for getting these vaccines out to the American public very quickly that's that's all true. but yep. the vaccine companies their job wasn't to make us healthier. their job is to maximize their profits. So what did they do? They pretty much that they focused their sales on the first world because they could make the most money by selling drugs to the first world. And they pretty much ignored the needs of low and middle income c- countries. So we got this fabulous vaccine that works fantastically. But the because the vaccination rates are so low in the third world, these variants are going to come back and bite us in the butt. So the drugs, the vaccines that work so well, yeah, but when the variants come back and we don't have a good immunity to the variants, we're back where we started or halfway back to where we started.
1: You know, I can hear you riling up a lot of conspiracy theorists right now, though. So I want to hear your take on this. Is there a potential that that is purposeful so that the drug companies can give us five, six, seven vaccines?
2: Mm -hmm. No, that's a great question. And I think if, if you tended to think in conspiracies, it's very easy to see that. Right. I, I would call it collateral damage to their okay. profiteering. Yes. I don't think I don't think that they're malignant in the sense that they purposely hurt people. I think they just grab as much money as they can and consequences be damned.
1: Yeah, that, that's my stance as well. And it makes sense to your point. Look, we created a vaccine. It works. Go take it. There's a variant. We'll create another one. It keeps going. We'll create another one. But if they're asked, you know, will you make any investment in actually eradicating the uh, the pandemic uh, unless there's a multiple return? The answer is no,
2: essentially. And and now for your listeners, um, Moderna, I just saw a Moderna chief scientist on TV last night. They're getting the message that their lack of care about global distribution has come back to hurt them reputationally so they're yeah. now saying they're going to build a factory in Africa. Well, that's great. They haven't picked a site yet. And you know, they said in October of um of uh 2020 that they would release their patent, that they they're good global citizens, they're going to make their patent available to the whole world and they're not going to be greedy about their patent. What they didn't say is they weren't going to spend an ounce of energy teaching people how to use the patent. Right. So the patent is worthless without the technical know-how, how how to do it. So they're coming around, at least from a PR point of view, and I hope we all sort of keep their nose to the grindstone and and make sure that they actually do transfer the ability to make vaccines to the third world. It's critically important, but they certainly had no interest in doing it. And I must say, The federal government, the United States, was paying for a lot of this. They paid for Moderna's research, um, and, and they made guaranteed purchase agreements. So most of this money came from the federal government. I'm not against it. We needed a vaccine. Thank God we got a vaccine from them. But what I am against is when the government is transferring all this money to the private sector, they could look out for the interest of Americans and the interest of global citizens and say, okay, we're going to give you all this money and we want Americans vaccinated, but we insist that you develop the capacity to vaccinate the third world in the most expeditious path possible. And we didn't do it. So many people will be saying, look,
1: they created the vaccine. We wouldn't have it without these companies. So therefore, you know they deserve to reap the rewards because they're taking the risk. Chris let but, me let, let me yeah, interrupt you there. Yeah.
2: The NIH created the infrastructure for the vaccines. In 2016, they figured out how to turn genetic code into mRNA. Wow. Uh, um, so the the technology came from the NIH. In the book, I say, um, the um, the drug company, they were gloating about developing these. They were making exactly the argument you just made. They were mm-hmm. gloating about having made the vaccines. And they did a PR campaign saying, don't take us for granted, meaning don't cut the reimbursement to Medicare or you won't get vaccines. And what I said in the book is what they should have written is don't take the NIH for granted. Because the NIH had done the work. Not enough people
1: hear that. This probably, over everything you've said, frustrates me the most. It's the same argument I make about companies like Amazon today not paying enough taxes. And when people say, but look at what they've created, they built it off of the infrastructure that we paid for. Like, think about the roads. Think about the Internet, which people, you know. No, was created by our money, funded by government things. So when people say the government is inefficient, ineffective, doesn't spend well, every massive life changing event, for the most part, I can't say every, the majority that have happened in the past 50 years started with government funding. Starting from going to the moon, which gave us the ability to put satellites in space, it. Dr- I just went on a rant. It drives me nuts. And I didn't know this about the vaccine. That's
2: absolutely true. A hundred percent of the drugs developed, I think, in the last 10 years are built on NIH research. Wow.
1: Okay. You've got me fired up. So <laughs> I got to come down here. Tell me if you could wave a magic wand and change the way we do things in the industry, what would we do? And I'm going to throw in a caveat, which is, but you can't cut out the potential to create life altering beneficial technologies because Mm -hmm. I don't want that part to go away. I don't want to just live to 90 and be healthy. I want to live to 150. (laughs) So, like, Uh, is there a way we can do both? Your
2: parents haven't gotten over 90 yet. Uh, (laughs) You're going to change your opinion.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Good point. Good point. I want to be healthy at
2: 150. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think... We need to start with an overview. And what's happening right now is a failure of democracy. There's, there's no other way to say it. Americans are dying in numbers that are historic. We've never died because of the inferiority of our health and health care. We're spending a trillion and a half dollars a year extra on it. It's ruining our country. It's suppressing wages. It's creating wealth inequality. Um, and. Americans don't want this. More than 80% of Americans say drugs are too expensive and the drug companies are more concerned about profit than they are about health. Americans know what's going on. So we've got a situation where our health is getting hurt, our wealth is being taken away, the American people overwhelmingly don't want it, the drug industry is contributing almost equally to Republicans and Democrats, and nothing is happening. This is not democracy working. This is capital um, being able to control the legislative and political process in order to continue to maximize return to investment. So it's a failure of democracy. So what do you do? You've got to organize. And there are three primary constituencies here that don't work together and need to work together. The first is the doctors and other healthcare professionals. They don't understand that they're not getting... A, good information reflecting the data in the clinical trials, or that the clinical trials are biased epidemiologically to tilt us towards expensive care instead of effective care and effective social care. They don't know that. They don't know that the peer reviewers aren't getting the data. They don't know that the clinical trial, the clinical practice guidelines experts who uh, aren't getting the data. So the doctors have got to understand the truth of this situation and not just what your drug rep buddies are telling them and realize that they can't function as learned intermediaries, which is their legal and moral responsibility. They can't do that if they don't have access to good data. And mm-hmm. the data isn't about the kinds of things that are going to best improve American's health. Mm-hmm. So the doctors need to understand that and then become political activists and say, we can't work in this um, profit generating system. Um you know doctors work hard, and about very close to a hundred percent of doctors want to do the right thing for their patients and yeah. they just don't understand this. this is news to them and um I'm not blaming them uh, you know I think that the the epistemological ether is so thick with the idea that innovation is the best way to improve Americans health that we forget to ask the epidemiological question. So I'm asking the doctors to get educated about this. And once they're educated, they've got to become politically um, uh, active because otherwise they have to admit to themselves that they're just being agents of the of this capitalist system, which is designed to extract as much money out of working Americans and give it to investors. And the, the intermediary happens to be healthcare. So- Docs need to become educated and active and other healthcare professionals. Number two yeah. is that the purchases of healthcare, non-healthcare related businesses have got to form a coalition amongst themselves and say, we're not going to buy your drugs if we can't have the data. We wouldn't buy your computers if you didn't tell us how you know what the size of your hard drives are. And we're yeah. not buying your drugs unless we get the data. One company can't do that. Three companies can't do that. All the companies could do that. That you know, about 150 million people have employer, um, em- employment-related health insurance in the United States, and they're a huge force. But they're not using their buying power, not organizing their buying power to exert that influence to say we're not buying drugs when you can't see the data. That's ridiculous. Right. And then the third constituency is us consumers. We want to be healthy. We don't want to be wasting a lot of money on healthcare, but if the healthcare were buying good health, well, we'd probably go for it, but it's not. So we want to be healthy and we deserve the right to be healthy. Now, if those three constituencies get together, and say, look, you can be a Republican, you can be a Democrat, you can think that um, there should be more social benefit, and you can think that private enterprise ought to be better rewarded, however you want to argue about those things, let's rebuild the common, the common good in this. And let's all figure out how we can rebuild the healthcare commons so that it serves Americans. And if we can't do that, Uh, we're in trouble. You know, this is a major test of democracy over capital. Are we run by capital or are we run by the will of the people?
1: I like how you put that. And first of all, thank you for that. But that last piece of a test of democracy, because are we run by people? Are we run by our votes? And ultimately, are we run by our interpretation of the results? Right. If you ask anyone, what is the purpose of healthcare? It's to keep us healthy. Then the answer becomes, are we doing that? And if the answer is no, it should change. And if the answer is yes, it should stay the same. And overwhelmingly, people are saying no. I mean, look, the discussion has changed so much in the past 10, 15 years that I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a lot of people who say, it's perfect and it's serving me. So I think the benefit of your voice and this book and what you just laid out is, we're getting to the point where we know this. I think what we're struggling with. And where a lot of the real emotion is coming from is we feel kind of crippled to do anything about it, but that's what comes next. I think. I hope so. I love this conversation. Dr. Abramson. I really appreciate your time. The book is sickening how big pharma broke American healthcare and how we can repair it. If you've enjoyed this conversation, the book is not just one. It's it's definitely not my rant. So I apologize, but I, I got passionate there. But it's the intellectual understanding of the nuance that impacts all of us. It needs to be written. It needs to be read. And more of these need to come out. So I want to say, first of all, thank you for taking your life's work and educating us on it. Also, is there anywhere else you would like to plug? I mean, is there a website you want to
2: drive people to? We will, of course,
1: link to this book.
2: Yeah, Chris, I, I'm a geek. I I, lo- I figured these things out. I, I've spent my life doing this. Um, I'm not good on, on social media, to be and perfectly honest. And you don't need honest. to
1: be. You don't need to be. I yeah. think it's a waste of people like your time, actually. I'd rather have this. So. Yeah,
2: and I'd rather have you to <laughs> yeah. get this message out. There you um, go. So I want to thank you for the opportunity to share these ideas with your listeners.
1: I appreciate it. I love this stuff. I think, uh, I hope it changes the world. I hope you change the world. I think this is so needed.
2: Well, it's in your hands now. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I'm going to try. I mean, I'm, I'm going to try and do my part.
2: Yeah. Thanks so much for the opportunity.
0: This week's guest was Dr. John Abramson. Dr. Abramson's book, Sickening How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It, is available wherever books are sold. The episode was hosted by Chris Stemp and edited by yours truly, John Rojas. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can reach us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you enjoy the podcast, you can support us financially at Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And you can stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast by heading over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com and signing up for the newsletter. That's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.